0: Ecclesiastes study. Tonight, we're going to be walking through the first 11 verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and we're going to do some background, some uh, contextual work. So if you're a note taker, the first chunk of this will be a good time to take uh, some notes. And so we'll be wading through some some deep stuff, but some important stuff, and we'll see in the first 11 verses kind of an overview of the whole book. Now, you'll probably um, wonder, if you haven't already, why we have entitled this series uh, through a book in the Old Testament a thousand years before Jesus came to earth why we would say that the theme is Jesus is hope and we'll explain that more as we go but you won't see the name of Jesus in this book so why why is Jesus hope well we know um, we get to see everything with some hindsight right It's 2020, and so we know that when you as a Bible student open up the Bible, that we can't just cherry pick verses or anything out of the Bible, you have to see each verse in context of that passage, each passage in context of a paragraph, each paragraph in context of a chapter, each chapter in context of that book, and every book of the Bible in context of the whole Bible. And we, thankfully, get to see how this whole thing ends. We know Jesus wins, and Jesus saves those who call him Lord and believe in him, and so We know, uh, even though Ecclesiastes doesn't make a big deal about Jesus, we know about Jesus. And so Jesus is the hope, and Ecclesiastes is the means of letting us know you need some hope. (laughs) You need some hope. Now, how many of you guys have some friends who are optimists or pessimists? Or let me maybe phrase it this way. How many of y'all are an optimist? Anyone in here? A few of you? Right. The optimists are good to hang out with because they're usually glass half full kind of people. Right. They can encourage you. They can see the good in things. Pessimists are a little more difficult to be around. Right. Because they they can have a a half empty kind of um, view towards the world that the glass is half empty and, and they'll take a negative spin on almost anything. They can be difficult to be around. But there's a third category of people that you probably have in your life, and maybe you are, and we call them a realist. How many of y'all would say you're a realist? The realist says, I'm neither a pessimist nor optimist, glass half full or half empty. I just see it as my duty to give you the fundamental truth about this earth and life as I see it. Like, you know, those kind of people in your life, right? It's a love-hate relationship with realists, isn't it? Because on one hand, you, you love them because they tell you, what you need to hear, even when it's hard. On the other hand, you kind of despise them because they tell you what you need to hear, even when it's hard, right? That's Ecclesiastes. That's Ecclesiastes. It is a, it is, it is a book that will gut punch you, but if it turns you to Jesus, if it gets a hold of your heart and says, you've been, you've been moving down the wrong path, your mind isn't right, how you understand life and everything in this world, it isn't lining up with the gospel, Uh, then it can be a beautiful, beautiful thing. So we're going to walk through this tonight. Uh, Let's do a little bit of background work, uh, like I mentioned before, and just see Ecclesiastes as a whole. Now, this book in the Bible has several character traits. The first one is it's been neglected by scholars. If you like to dig into commentaries, you don't see a whole bunch about Ecclesiastes. How many of y'all have been a part of an in-depth Ecclesiastes Bible study in your life? No, not many of you, right? That's why it's a good book to study, because you don't hear a much about it. You don't hear a bunch of people writing about it, a bunch of people talking about it. And why? Because It's confusing. Even in prep for this, having preached through lots of books of the Bible, I opened it up, I read through the whole thing just just, just to dig into it myself and and do kind of an overview of each chapter. I can't tell you how many times. As your pastor, as your friend, my prayer after reading this in the last few weeks has been, God, I didn't understand anything I just read. <laughs> I didn't understand that. It is it's confusing. It is a dark book. It's contemplative. It is in and of itself pretty hopeless. There's some hope in it, you'll find. But it's a rough book. It's a rough book. And really it's a portrait of the fall We know that God created us in his image. Things were good in the beginning. And we know when he comes back, things will be good. And in the meantime, when human beings have a decision, you can live in a fallen, broken world according to the ways of a fallen, broken world, or you can live in a fallen, broken world and follow Jesus. This paints the picture of what it looks like to live after the fall, what we call the fall, original sin, sin breaking and entering this world. And this is the picture. If you chase the things of the world... Ecclesiastes says, this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like. Because the author's already been there, done that. This is an interesting book. It's a unique book. If you just had someone read to you the book of Ecclesiastes and you didn't know it was in the Bible, you would think it came from a psychology class at a local community college. It's just unique. It's unique because most books of the Bible have God speak into the book, whether it's through dream prophecy or just speaking to the the writer of the book or the people in the book. This book doesn't have God speak into it, even though God speaks through it because it's still in the Bible. This book is about the author, after his life experiences, speaking about God in the context of his life experiences. So it's unique. Because it speaks about God, but God doesn't necessarily speak in this book. He'll speak through it, but not in it. We also see the literary genre it is wisdom literature. That's what one thing we call uh, different genres in the Bible. We have walked through narratives. You read through the Gospels, and these are narratives. These are the story, true stories, of what it was like to, to walk with Jesus, his time on earth. You see the epistles or letters uh, of Paul, uh, of Peter. We just walked through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John over the last whole bunch of months. Those are epistles. Those are letters. There's, um, uh, there's all kinds of different genres in the Bible. And this one happens to be a wisdom uh, literature is what we call it. And so it's not necessarily for beginners. It's a good book to study, but it would be like if you had never studied the Bible at all and you didn't know much about it. If you jump straight into Ecclesiastes without any other knowledge about Scripture, it would be like trying to learn how to drive at the age of sixteen while in rush hour traffic in a big city, driving a stick shift during a snowstorm blindfolded. Like that's that's kind of what Ecclesiastes is. If you're not familiar with the Bible and even the the genre that we see in Scripture of wisdom literature, some other uh, Books that are wisdom literature would be Song of Songs. It's, a, <laughs> it's, it's as close to the biblical version of Fifty Shades of Grey as you're going to get uh, in the Bible. Let me just say that. But it's a love story, and it teaches us a lot about love. And actually, if you were in a marriage relationship, you will find uh, it to be a beautiful book. Proverbs is another book that teaches us how to worship God with all of our life. And it, it is uh, wisdom literature, and so is Ecclesiastes. It's wisdom literature. Now, Proverbs has a whole bunch of great one-liners. Just powerful, short statements about life and wisdom in life. Ecclesiastes isn't quite that way. It it is all over the place. Even tonight when we walk through the first 11 verses, to form an outline is really difficult. As a Southern Baptist preacher, I love to have me three or four bullet points, and I want them all to start with the same letter, and I like all of that. You're probably not going to find that much With this, it bounces. His flow of thought bounces all over the place. It's a monologue from the author, who who is simply saying, "Let me just tell you." It's like you got wise people in your life, right? Sitting down and just hanging out on the porch with your grandpa, and he's just going to tell you some life lessons. But he bounces for two hours about all kinds of different things. You're like, "Oh, you're here, you're there." Okay, I'm just kind of taking notes here. That's that's Ecclesiastes. He's all over the place um, as a writer, but it's good. It's good. We also see the date and the purpose. It's roughly 950 BC. When it was actually written down, uh, we're unsure. But the events that take place are around 1,000 years before Jesus came to earth. And the purpose of this is really to answer the second of three uh, general questions that you and I and all of humanity ask themselves throughout life. Why? um, Excuse me. Where did we come from? Why are we here? And where are we going? We want to know those things. We want to know how we got here, what we're doing here, and where we're supposed to go from here. And the second question, what are we doing here? What's the purpose? What's the meaning of life? That is the author's goal. And so it's a, it's a deep book because that's a deep question. But I love this book it's honestly probably my favorite uh, book of the Bible, certainly the Old Testament, in that not only does its darkness kind of match my weird personality, um, and so some of these sermons will probably flow too naturally out of me, but it is tackling a question that has been on my mind since I was a boy. This is one reason why I'm a Christian today. Obviously, the grace of God, the Holy Spirit of God drew me, the gospel has saved me. But I, as a young man at 22 years old, needed purpose. I was weighing the pros and cons of waking up each day and saying, is this all worth it? And some days, I was having a hard time finding the pros to outweigh the cons. And I don't know if you've been there before, but I was there. And I needed purpose. Christianity gives you purpose. So, He talks about that. Why am I here? The themes that you're going to see, two predominant themes in the book of Ecclesiastes through these 12 chapters. The first one is that the author faces the frustrations of life on earth. He faces them. There's all kinds of things that you and I are frustrated about. Injustices. Why sometimes do the wicked prosper and yet the righteous have bad things happen? Why, Why are there injustices? Why um, do you and I see that we are born and yet we 're going to die and we wonder what what 's the whole cycle of life what 's the point of it these are These are big frustrations we have contentment or discontentment with wealth or a lack thereof, and certainly the realization that happiness is fleeting. These are all frustrations that you and I have in life. The author hits them head on so we 're going to be talking. Um, a lot about those topics. The second one, the theme that we really want to focus on is that the purpose of life, you'll see at the very end of this book, and he gives kind of tidbits throughout the book, the purpose of life is to simply obey God. He says at the end of the book, purpose is to fear God and to obey God. If you go way back in the author's history, he is the, um, the, the um, son of David, and his dad told him, When he first came into uh, being a king, he told him, fear God and obey God. And then this guy has a whole life of experiences that are up and down and crazy and dramatic, which we'll talk about. He gets back to the end of life and he sits down and says, yeah, just like my daddy told me. I don't know what we're doing here, but I know if we love God, if we obey God, if we have a relationship with God, the God of the Bible, that's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. So, tonight, in the first 11 verses, we're going to see kind of a, a general overview of this book. And the theme is, words from a wise man. Words from a wise man. So let's jump on in. If you got a Bible, feel free to open it up to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. The first few verses, we're going to have to park in because there's a lot of really good, crucial information for us. And then we'll speed it up after that. So, if time ticks away on us and you're thinking, oh, there ain't no way we're going to make it through 11 verses tonight. You know me. I start off slow and then I finish a little bit quicker. So um, Ecclesiastes chapter one, verse one it says the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So this is this is the author. This is this is the person who is writing this. And we believe that to be Solomon. How many of you are familiar with Solomon? There's. A bunch of Solomons. This Solomon is well-known. Now, there's three things that point to who this guy is. It says the preacher. The, the Hebrew word koaleth is um, used here, and it means preacher, teacher, or a gatherer of assemblies. So you might have a translation that says uh, gatherer or teacher, but he's someone who can gather people together, and he imparts wisdom. Now, who, during this time frame, would be any better at that than King Solomon? Right? It also says that he's the son of David. He's the son of David, and that he's the king in Jerusalem. Well, that narrows it down quite a bit. Some scholars argue who the author of this book is. The first verse pretty much sums it up. If it ain't King Solomon, who else has this resume? Who else has this resume? So if you want to hear a little bit more about Solomon, and we're going to talk um, a good chunk. I'm going to rifle off a bunch about his life. You can, you can look at 1 um, Kings. Uh, chapters 1 through 11, you can see in Second Chronicles, chapters 1 through 9, 2 Samuel, chapter 7, and then for chapters uh, 11 and 12, and that'll give you a good idea of what we know about Solomon. Now, there's four different areas I'm going to hit on before we move on, because these are all crucial parts to understanding who this guy is and where he's coming from. The first one is, What's the historical significance of Solomon? So when people talk about Solomon from the Bible, what do they think of? Well, they think of the wisest man in history, right? Um, What else comes to mind? If you know a little bit about Solomon, what comes to mind outside of he's the wisest guy? Crazy rich. rich, Yeah, he's crazy rich. He... um, built the first temple. So there's two temples built, and we hear Solomon's temple. This is the temple he built that David wanted to build but didn't build to God. Uh, He was the third in the line of the United Monarchy. So the first king that uh, Israelites ever had was Saul, and he was kind of crazy, right? And then David, uh, his father, and then Solomon. And after Solomon, there's Jeroboam and Rehoboam and some other folks involved that split the kingdom, and we have what we call the divided kingdom. So never again has there been, outside of Jesus himself, one king over Israel. There was uh, southern Israel, where they called Judah, and then there was northern Israel. That was ten tribes, and they all had... um, Those two had different kings, and northern Israel never had a good king. They were all messed up, and they, by 722 BC, didn't exist anymore because the Assyrians came in and uh, wiped them out. They went into exile, but southern Israel, or what they called Judah, uh, where Jerusalem was and where the temple was, they lasted a little bit longer until about 586 BC before they were taken into exile by the Babylonians. Solomon's temple was destroyed, and it's all gone. So he was a king for 40 years, just like his dad, David, was a king for 40 years, just like Saul was a king for roughly 40 years. This is what we know about um, his historical significance. Now, his lineage, drama, drama, drama. If you think your family had issues, Solomon's family had issues. His daddy was David, from what we understand, but his mom was Bathsheba. You remember about Bathsheba? The pinnacle of David's sin was when he slept with someone else's wife, got her pregnant, then had his, her husband murdered on the battlefield, and that baby that Bathsheba had eventually died, right? But then Bathsheba got pregnant again, had another little baby. You know who the baby's name is? Solomon. And his name means peace. It was a mark between David and God, that David had strayed from God. He, he had um, some issues with God, and God saying, this is kind of a redemption baby. This is a sign that, that we are back in this. I'm, I'm going to continue your throne. And so this is uh, a man who comes from a crazy family. Now, he had all kinds of wisdom. If you read in 1 um, Kings, you, you'll see about a dream that uh, Solomon had, where the Lord appears to him and says essentially this, for lack of better terms, all of us, we, we, we would love this to be our case, right? Where God says, I'm going to grant you anything you want. What do you want? And Solomon says, something that most of us probably wouldn't, he says, I, I am to, um, to to lead your people, and discernment over your people is a big deal, and I want to lead them well. I'm asking for wisdom. And God sees that and says, that's what I like. That's what I like. You ask for the right thing. I'm not only going to make you the wisest man there is, outside of Jesus, again, but I'm going to make you the richest man. Your kingdom is going to be bigger than any other kingdom on earth. So, change the game when it comes to how big kingdoms on earth could be. He was a wise man. Scripture says that he wrote over 3,000 proverbs and or excuse me, 1,005 songs. It says that he was wiser than all the wise men in the East. So most people see philosophy as starting with Aristotle, Socrates, Plato, wise guys, right? But hundreds of years before them was Solomon. He was wiser than all of them. He was wiser than all of them. People came from all over the world to see him. Queen Sheba, she had heard, this guy's amazing. So she comes to test his wisdom, and she's so blown away. Not only did she give all of her spices and gems to him, she says, the people who told me about you and how wise you are, and that word has spread all over the world, they didn't even know the half of it. Like, he was just that dude. you got people in your life that you're like, they're wise. When I, when I go stand and, and sit with them, talk with them, whatever, like they can just impart knowledge and wisdom. Solomon had wisdom. He had wisdom. And he also had riches. It says he had at least 40,000 horses. He built a palace for himself that took 13 years to build. He literally sat upon a golden throne. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Before there was desperate housewives, there was <laughs> Solomon. He could literally have breakfast, lunch, and supper with a different wife or concubine Every day of the year for a year, just to have lunch, breakfast, supper with him once. Man. He lived a playboy lifestyle. He sought to answer the question, what is the meaning of life? And so Ecclesiastes is him getting more than likely to the end of life, seeing that he was born into nobility, he was born into a a great family, and he then knew what was right in the eyes of the Lord, did it for a while, but then strayed. And he loved the power and the riches and the wives and all of the things that came with it. And he lived a crazy playboy life and then at the end came back to the Lord came back to the Lord. So Ecclesiastes is him saying, "I sought out to find the meaning of life, and my strategy was don't knock it till you try it." He tried it. He tried everything. He tried everything. He had the money of Bill Gates, the power of Donald Trump, and the lifestyle of Hugh Hefner. He was Pope, president, and the prodigal son all wrapped in to one. but he has credibility because this is essentially his autobiography. You say, well, when someone's been to the top of the mountain, they can tell me about the climb. But if you ain't been to the top of a mountain, don't tell me about climbing. Solomon's done it all. He's done it all. Everything you've ever strived after he had in his hands. Everyone knew it, and he knew it. And he said, you don't want it. You don't want it. Ultimately, he's saying, life with God is best. I've tasted everything the world has to offer that's good, and life with God is best. It's a good word. Verse 2. He says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Do you guys pick up on a key word in there? It feels like there's a song. I can't quite put my finger on it. It looks like there's A key word. Vanity is a key word. This is huge because Solomon's thesis, his his outcome, his conclusion to all of this that he's lived in life is that everything on this earth is meaningless. It is meaningless. So, this is a little bit of spoiler alert here. Now, the word vanity in the Hebrew, it it means Hebel, and it it is. it means fleeting, it means vapor, and there's a sense of frustration um, and elusiveness to the word. You're going to see it all throughout Ecclesiastes, 38 times it appears, and so this is, this is his, his, his primary theme. I'm telling you guys, everything is vanity, everything is a vapor, everything is elusive. You'll never fully find the, the meaning of life on earth if you try to find the meaning on earth, through earth. You can find the meaning of life, but it ain't going to be in the things you see. Some translations, maybe your translation, translates it not vanity, but meaningless. That's powerful because the way we understand and translate this word shapes the way we review the rest of the book. And quite frankly, life. Because he's saying, this is it. This is it. It's all meaningless. It's all a vapor. You guys go see your friends and... Uh, you say, hey, how you doing today, right? And what do they say to you? More than not, they, they say, I'm doing okay, doing fine, right? You ask Solomon, how are you doing, man? You say, meaningless, meaningless. Everything's meaningless. A bell, a bell, everything's a bell. It's just meaningless. He's a downer. He's, he's discouraging. Now, I think we've all felt that way, right? You wake up some days and you just feel like, what am I, why am I doing this? why am I in the rat race and I'm doing the same things over and over and over? But how many of us actually like believe that everything's meaningless? No, you see, you and I, we need purpose, don't we? We desire purpose, we need it, and we are on a quest to find it. And if we are honest in our heart of hearts, even those of us who say, I love Jesus, I want to follow Jesus, there's still, if you got that sin, Sinful nature creeping up, trying to get back in, saying, "Listen, there's a way, right? There's a way, and and, and you could find the way, and you can find meaning in things, and you can find purpose in things, and like you you can change things, and you are unique, right? We're all little snowflakes. We're all just a unique butterfly. We can be the ones who figure out what this is all about." And you say, "Well, that's not me," but don't we live like it? People give us advice all the time. We read scripture. We know the path that's right. We know the one that's narrow and the one that's wide. And yet we take often the one that's wide because we think, I think I can figure things out. I think I got a path. That's pretty good. So I'm going to choose my own ways and lean on my own insights. But it's a lie. It's like on a cold winter morning when you walk outside and you take a breath and you feel that crisp air in your lungs and you see, You take that breath, you see your breath, don't you? How long do you see your breath? Split second, and then it's gone, right? That's what Solomon's saying. Saying everything. It's a vapor. Life is a vapor. It's like trying to grasp smoke. It's like trying to put mist in your pocket. It's like a little kid who likes to collect things. If he said, yeah, yeah, I'm collecting like Silas. He loves to collect rocks, right? He's got a little rock collection. He likes bugs in the summertime. A little bit of a creepier collection, but he likes to collect bugs. Adults, man, we're striving after the wind. It's like saying, hey, you know what? I'm going to set out to collect some wind. (laughs) How long, how, how well would that go for you, right? You say, that's crazy. And yet every time you see humanity chasing their own hopes, their own dreams, their own idea of what life is and what it should be, and neglecting God and his word, it's like trying to collect wind. Some have said Ecclesiastes is like a wild goose chase without a goose, it's a striving. You know, over and over and over, he says, it's a striving after the wind. I don't know about you, but you ever just, in my life, I've found myself often just a deep sigh. Maybe it's at the end of the day. Maybe it's in the middle of something frustrating, a relationship, work, and you just have like that deep guttural sigh where you're just like, ah. You say, what are we doing? What's all this about? If that's you, you That's an Ecclesiastes moment. Uh, Solomon's been there. He's been there. Verse 3 says, Now what does man gain by all the toil? So that's the question that we're going to use for the rest of the verses here. This is the question that Solomon's asking. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Next thing we see, verse 3, Solomon's experience. Solomon's experience. So his thesis was everything on earth in and of itself apart from God is meaningless. And my experience is that everything on earth apart from God is broken. We call this the fall. Original sin. Adam and Eve sin enters the world through their sin, and now all of us experience a broken humanity, a broken world. The earth groans out. You see earthquakes, hurricanes, everything. It's all pointing towards the whole world wanting redemption. It wants to be made new. It wants to be made new. His experience is, it's all broken. He says, life under the sun. Now, this is one Hebrew word, but we translate it into this phrase. And you'll see this over and over and over and over again, 26 times you'll see in this book. You'll hear it 38 times, vanity, 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 vapor, meaningless. That's what life is. But you'll hear over and over and over, life under the sun. So what is he referring to when he says under the sun? This is crucial because if you don't get this part, the rest of it won't make much sense either. What he's saying is, life without God. So life on earth, whether it be things, stuff, your house, your your clothes, whether it be um, dreams, hopes, whether it be philosophy, wisdom of the world, everything apart from God is what he's saying that's under the sun. That's under the sun. So there's limited insight under the sun. Now, this is both. Really good and really bad. Why is it really good? And this is, this is hopeful here. This is really exciting. Because everything he's talking about is only the stuff under the sun. So uh, you're not as excited as I am. The reason that's exciting is because it's only the stuff under the sun. So the conclusion is maybe we need to look above the sun. Uh, maybe, maybe under the sun, this kingdom and this worldly kingdom and our own little kingdoms, maybe, maybe there's another kingdom that we need to look into. Maybe a spiritual kingdom. And that's, that's the hope. It doesn't change anything for Christians. This isn't supposed to be a downer for us. You're going to walk through this study and you will either have one conviction of two convictions. Either you will, you will think to yourself, oh man, this book is horrible and depressing and I am angry hearing some of the things he's talking about. If you know that you should be following Jesus, but, but you just don't want to align with him, you'll be in that boat. Because you'll say, I'm walking down the path Solomon walked, and he's saying he got to the end, and he's turning back saying, it ain't worth it! Some of you will find yourself frustrated if that's you. Or you'll find yourself loving this book, and you'll say, yeah, it's kind of depressing. And Ryan, he's kind of a depressing guy too. But outside of that, like I see this as beautiful and insightful and wonderful. An affirmation that seeking God, even through the chaos of my life, the drama of my life, the crazy past of my life, seeking God, having a relationship with Jesus, repenting of sin, obeying him, enjoying life in the fullest through Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. Yeah, that's where I need to be. And you'll love it. And you'll be nodding your head. You'll say, yep, 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 yep. Been there, done what Solomon's talking about. And and I know it's good. It's good for me to follow Jesus. So that's the good news. The bad news is, under the sun, is where you and I currently live. And so we can leave this whole thing knowing, I think I should follow Jesus, but you still got to choose to. And the truth is, most of us in this room are probably Christians. I'm guessing, I'm assuming, right? You'd have to be incredibly devoted to not be a Christian and want to be here on a Wednesday night. I would be glad if that was you, but I'm, I'm guessing most of you are Christians. And so... You and I are tempted every single day to put a little too much stock into our relationships, a little too much hope in our jobs, a little too much emphasis on our dreams and our goals. And even though we got Jesus, we kind of want him to follow us instead of us following him. That temptation's there. And so the bad news is we we still got to choose to walk it out. But through the power of his Holy Spirit and the guidance of his word, we certainly can choose him. Now, We'll speed it up. We're going. We're moving. Verses verses four through seven. So the question in in verse three was, "What does a man gain by all the toil, all of his work?" Right. And now we're going to see that question and a couple answers. Verse four says, "A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises." The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To to the place where the stream flows, there they flow again. All right. Solomon's question that you see in verse 3, but it's backed up in these verses. Why do we work so hard? Why do we work so hard? Every single one of us, no matter how lazy you are or you, you have maybe been accused of being, we all put effort into something. Even if it's being lazy, we put effort into being lazy, right? But let me ask you about your life. Where does your time go? Where does your energy go? Where does your heart go? What are you putting effort in? What are you putting effort in? If you're like most of us, it's probably a combination of things. Relationships, maybe Um, whether it's dating or you're married or you have kids or you got friends, your work, we all got to work, right? Maybe hobbies or hopes, dreams, goals. Where's your energy going? You find all of it marked by one thing, that you're pouring out. Look at your relationships. How many times you feel like, I'm just pouring out, I'm pouring out, I'm pouring out. Sometimes you don't feel like the other person's pouring in, right? At work. I go to work and I'm just drained and exhausted when I go home, right? You ever feel that way? Every day, Every day yes. You've been there, right? Because you're pouring out. Even your dreams and your hopes and all those things, you, you find yourself sometimes tired. Why? Because you're pouring out. And you ever stop and just ask yourself, why? Why am I working so hard? Where, where is this taking me? Where am I going? Solomon answers the question that he's asking. What does a man gain by all his toil? And his answer is nothing. Nothing! And if you think that's depressing, it gets way worse. Just hold on for a while, right? Nothing. On earth, again, this is so key. Please, 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 please hang with me in this. Apart from God. Because you can do one thing, and you can do it two different ways. With God, in his will, and, and out of his will, apart from him. Not everything. Obviously, you can't sin and be in God's will. But you, you can work your job and, and, and do it with the Lord, or you can just do it for yourself. You can have relationships where you can include the Lord, or you can just be in it for yourself. And he's only saying the stuff apart from God is meaningless. It's worthless. You ever been in a relationship, been so frustrated with the other person, that she looked at me and you said, I don't even know why I tried. Some marriages end in that way. I don't even know why I try. You ever woke up in the morning and the first thought you had was, oh no, I gotta go to work. And you lay in bed and you literally think to yourself, why do I even wake up? Just gonna do it again and again and again and I don't see any end in sight. And you and I try to find answers, don't we? And if you find them apart from God, they're always short-sighted, temporary, and they will leave you hungering for more. At most, they get you to your next emotional breakdown. (laughs) Or driving home in your car after work at night, and you're having that contemplated kind of conversation with yourself, and you convince yourself, oh, it'll pay off one day, surely, right? And then we get to retirement, and we look back and say, no, it didn't pay off like I was thinking. People get there all the time. They turn around and say, it didn't pay off like I was hoping. And yet the deceit of, if you, just, if you just believe there's meaning in the things around us apart from God, and you just keep walking, someday, man, the curtain will pull back and you'll realize, yeah, that's why I put in so many hours at work. And I neglected my family? Yeah, that's why, that's why I got married and I did this and I had kids and everything was great, but I... and the truth is Solomon gets to the end and says, I did it all. And I got more wisdom than everyone else and I'm saying it wasn't worth it. Someone said that Ecclesiastes is the most honest book ever written, but it's not a cure for depression. <laughs> it's, it's, it's difficult. I think Solomon has the gift of uh, discouragement. It is rough. He says in verse 4, Generation comes and a generation goes. What's he saying? He's saying every generation thinks that they are smarter than the last, that they are better than the last, that they can fix the mistakes of the last. And although they love their parents and respect their grandparents, they think, well, we're going to be able to do things a little bit better. They think that, right? As, that's why young people, and we'll call them millennials here, but this is just young people in general, love having causes, right? Because they see things like social injustices. They see brokenness on earth, and they say, man, just that instinct in us knows we, we, we're the ones who broke this whole thing, <laughs> but we've got we to gotta fix it. We can If we all do our part, and we all follow our own path, and we all care about something and invest in something and try to get other people psyched up about what we care about, that we can make an impact, and we can try to fix this earth. And so you, you got to have a cause, right? You, you got to have breakfast, lunch, dinner, and a cause. That's what millennials think. Everyone's got to have their cause. And what they find is that you get your cause, and you can't ever fulfill that cause. And then you find at the end of life, if you're trying to fix the broken planet you live on, apart from the God who created it, you will never see this thing redeemed. If you're in it for your own kingdom and not his kingdom, you got to understand this, church. The answer is not found in the problem. And the problem does not produce the answer. The world's broken. So the world says, let's fix it. And God's saying, you're going to have to look outside. (laughs) You have to look outside. Doesn't work. Doesn't work. Every generation comes running out of the gate and they're running, running, running towards their causes and what they think is going to fix this whole thing and we got the best ideas, everything's wonderful and then they get to the end of life and they look down and realize I was on a treadmill. And My parents were on the treadmill and my grandparents were on the treadmill and, and they mistake movement for Progress. And you see the evolutionary chart. You see the monkey over here and the man over here. And they think that it's linear, that every generation that comes will make things better. And what we're going to find out in a few verses and in here is Solomon saying it's cyclical. And history repeats itself. And you might think you've got new ideas and that you are going to be able to fix things. But if you, apart from God, are trying to do this, nah. He created it. We broke it. But only he can fix it. Now this is please, please, please don't un, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying we shouldn't care about social injustice; that we shouldn't have some causes on Earth. I'm just saying they got to be gods. <laughs> they got to be gods. And we got to align with him and say, God, however you want me to serve you and however you want to use me, do it. But it's not going to be me in and of myself trying to figure this out. It says the sun hastens to the place that uh, that word. Hastens literally means, it means pants. (laughs) Then the rest of these verses, six and seven, just say the same thing in a different way, that it's relentless. It's a cycle and it just keeps on going. Verse eight. Sums up verses six and seven by saying, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What does this mean? What does this mean? Solomon asks the question, what does a man gain by all his toil, by all his hard work on earth? Nothing. And he comes to two conclusions. The first one is that life is a road trip in a cul-de-sac. Life is a road trip in a cul-de-sac. You see, the world, because they think that progress, they see everything as as progress, all wisdom, all technology, all ideas, all new philosophy, they they see it as linear and progress. They believe we're on an interstate. And as long as we keep going at a fast pace, we'll make it somewhere great. And God's saying, through Solomon, you ain't on no interstate. You're in a cul-de-sac, you're going in circles. You're going in circles. He says that all things are full of weariness. How many of you want to say amen to that? All things are full of weariness. Weariness means exhaustion. They just burden you. They just, they just wear you out. Relationships, work, everything. It wears you out. And all things are full of it. Let me ask you, what exhausts you the most in life? Is it the mundane, the routine? Waking up and saying, huh. Doing the same thing over and over. Is that what exhausts you? Or is it the idea of the next new exciting thing in your life? Because you know that might sound more hopeful, but that's just as exhausting. Because you find that next new exciting thing and then it doesn't become new and exciting anymore. And then you realize that you're discontent. So everything's full of weariness. Everything will exhaust you, but there's a cycle in life of exhaustion and discontentment. Exhaustion and discontentment. You're exhausted because you've been chasing things because you're discontent. And when you're discontent, you realize, hey, I need a change. I I want want to do something. So you put all your effort into it and then you become exhausted. And then it goes over and over and over. I need more stuff. I need more things. I need a better relationship. I need a marriage. I need something to fix this. I need a little more, A little more, A little more. It exhausts you. But then you're discontent again, and it exhausts you, and you're discontent. That the eye isn't satisfied with seeing, so we can see, but we're not satisfied with it. There's always something else to gain. That the ear it isn't full. That it hears, but it still wants to hear more. There's just different ways of saying, we're discontent. Is that you? Are you discontent? Normally when you're discontent you find yourself having a couple different thoughts. The first one is, something bad led me here. If you're a discontent in a relationship, you think, oh, either I made a mistake in getting into this, or it just went south. Something bad got me here. The second thought you'll have is, I need to get myself out. So something bad got me here, and now I'm unhappy, and unhappiness means I need to change. And so who's the agent of change? You are. And those things require your effort and it will exhaust you. You see, discontentment has two paths. It's got two paths. Whenever you find yourself unhappy and discontent with the things of this world, and you're not seeking after Jesus, and you know we can find contentment in him, then, then your two paths really are to um, to fix the box or to break the box. To fix the box or to break the box. Here's Here's what I mean everything relationship job everything it's a box you're in a box right so so just hang with me in this imagery so you're in a box of a relationship, and you say, well, okay, I'm discontent in this relationship, so I'm either going to fix the box or I'm going to break the box. So if you fix it, you're thinking to yourself, okay, you know what? I can change. Uh, you can change. If we just try a little bit harder, if we just regroup in this marriage, if we just if we just try something a little bit different, we can fix it. So you're saying, let's just fix the box. I'm discontent with what's going on inside the box. Let's fix it. Your job? You say, uh, I'm not fulfilled in my job, and uh, I'm looking at other jobs, but you know what? No, I'm just going to stay in this job, and I'm going to try to make the most of it. I'm going to hold. I didn't get this raise and I didn't get this promotion, but if I just hang out here a little bit longer, then we can fix it because another job will, will open up. I'll get that promotion. It'll be good. How many of you like to fix the box? It's exhausting. If you say, I'm just going to stay in the box that I'm discontented, but try to fix it. The other option is that, that you can try to break the box. So you're in that relationship. You say, you know what? Eh, this was the last big fight. We're not going to do this anymore. I'm breaking the box. I'm leaving you. I'm going to someone else. But what happens there? At first, it's temporary pleasure because you're like, oh, I'm out of that. I can get in something new. then you find yourself after 30, 40 years going from box to box to box, relationship, relationship, relationship. That's the thing about changing boxes. You always find another box, don't you? And this box will ultimately, if you got something wrong inside, turn out to be just as bad as the previous box. There's temporary hope thinking maybe this will be better, but it's not. Outside of Jesus, it's not. Oh, I'm gonna get a different job. I'm gonna break the box. I'm gonna move somewhere new and and I'm gonna get a different job. Guess what? You move somewhere new and you find out you brought yourself with you. (laughs) And maybe you were the problem. I love you. This isn't super encouraging, but this is this is good. This is good. This is listen guys. This might sound discouraging but it's insightful, it's helpful, and if you listen and turn your faith to Jesus, you will find this saves you from a lot of disillusionment. There's the third option with the whole boxes and discontentment. You ain't got to fix it, you ain't got to break it, but you got to let Jesus into it. That relationship you're in, you include Jesus, you find it changes. That job you despise, you do it for the Lord. All of a sudden, you find you're content. The deception of contentment is that we think we have to move somewhere else. If I just got out of this circumstance, if I just got a little more, I could become content. Biblical contentment is being able to stay wherever you are in whatever situation and knowing you have a peace and a comfort and a joy that is beyond the circumstance and the situation, that it's only found in Jesus. Last few verses. Verse 9 it says, What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new. It, is our, it has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Last but not least for tonight, his second conclusion. First is, we're not on an interstate, we're on a cul-de-sac. This is a life and it is a cycle. Second conclusion is that history repeats itself. History repeats itself. This is the wisest man outside of Jesus, that ever lived and walked on this earth. And he's saying, listen, I am known. His resume is that he built the temple. He built this palace. He built this kingdom. And he's saying, you can't do anything new. If anyone's done anything new, I wrote 3,000 proverbs and over 1,000 songs. Guess what? All those proverbs have been talked about long before I wrote them. And all those songs were probably sang long before I wrote them as well. That, that history repeats itself. And you know this to be true, right? Whether it's fashion, style. You might think you got some bad style. You hang around long enough and your style will be cool, right? That's the good news, right? Because you know, style goes out of fashion and it comes back into fashion. And now every one of you that has been saying you don't want to get rid of your wardrobe that your wife has been telling you to get rid of for a long time, this will be proof that you need to keep it. Don't. Get rid of it, please. Anyway, as the, and the wives say, amen. Philosophy. You got a new idea? been done before. I remember when I was in the sixth grade, I thought I was so wise, It's going to sound so stupid, because in my little mind, this was like groundbreaking. I was reading a book about Michael Jordan, right? And he had won like a bunch of championships. And I remember I said to myself, sitting in the back of the class, I was reading this book, and I, I thought to myself, Michael Jordan does on a daily basis what people dream of doing once in a lifetime. I like, I pushed myself out of the... Dang, where'd that come from? Like, that was wise. That's pretty good. I was surprised that he could even come up with something like that. Wasn't that great, was it? Let's be honest. You realize there's nothing new. You think you're going to be the one who creates something awesome and new. He's saying it's been done before. You think, man, I'm going to be remembered. Let me ask you, what did you eat for breakfast one week ago from today? you can't remember, right? This is how life is. You won't be remembered. The most important things in life, ultimately, you won't be remembered. The only legacy you got is the legacy of the kingdom of God expanding as you being a servant of it. That's the kingdom that's eternal. That's the one that lasts forever. That's the one that matters. But we always think that what's new is better. And that progress Always happens with time. C.S. Lewis said, that's chronological snobbery. (laughs) When you think that, hey, you can do something new, it's going to be groundbreaking. The Bible says, it ain't linear. It's a cycle. Someone's already done it. They've been there. They've done that. So, if that's true, and you know history repeats itself, whether it's war or ideas or philosophy or style, then let's just ask a few questions about your life. What you can't say now is, if I just got a better job and made more money, things would really turn around. And you put your hope in that. Solomon had all the money, and he had the best job. If you say, you know what? Uh, I think I'm doing good in most of my life. But if I just found that spouse, if I just got married and I had someone to support me, and maybe you got a kid and you're thinking, if I just had a, a dad or a mom for that child or whatever, then things would just be a little better. And you wouldn't say that's your hope, but day in and day out, that's what you're clinging to. You're just hoping it comes around. Solomon had all the wives, <laughs> quite literally, like if, if <laughs> 700 wives. See, if I just got into a house that allowed us more space and I could just breathe a little bit, things would be better. He had the best house. He had the best house. And so history doesn't need to repeat itself with you. That you can break out of it. You know what we need? You say, what is all this leading to? Because we need to wrap this thing up and you need to give me some good news, Pastor Ryan. If history... If history repeats itself, we need someone to break down through history and get us off the treadmill, get us out of the rat race. And thank God a thousand years after these words were spoken, we had Jesus. Break into history, come down into the things under the sun and say, I got something better. That's the hope. That's the hope. When you place your faith in him, when you trust in his death and resurrection, that you find yourself affirmed. This is the way to go. you got to get off of the proverbial gerbil wheel. And for some of us, we know it, but we just got to do it. Six, seven days ago, our internet went out. First world problems, right? It hadn't gone out in two years. But it went out for 12 hours. Then it got fixed. It's kind of a pain, but whatever. A couple of days later, and they say, let me again. Now I'm frustrated. I go, oh, this is, this, this is taking me off. So I call them, and they say, let me walk you through some stuff. And, and, and they did, and it didn't work. They said, well, I'll have a technician come out the next day. So we were going to leave town. Didn't really want to sit around and wait for this technician to come. So I, I, I get off the phone. We got this appointment. I leave to go get some food. Come back an hour later. Tara says, Internet's working. Like, okay, we'll wait till tomorrow morning and see if we need to cancel it. Wake up tomorrow morning. It's working still. Yay, this is good. Call them, cancel it. Two days later. Internet's not working again. So now I'm really frustrated, and we're on the phone making an appointment for the guy to come back again, which originally never came because I canceled the appointment. And as we have scheduled this appointment and are about to get off the phone, he says, hey, you know what, let me just help you real quick. Let's see if we can't fix this. Walk through it, Internet's fixed. He says, do you want to cancel the technician? I said, no. Because although in front of my face, things look okay. I know enough right now to know inside, deep down, something's broken. Send out the technician. Because I don't want to go every 48 hours of my life trying to fix this thing over and over and over, beating my head over the same issues. Technician came out today. Internet's been working fine. What's the problem? Internet's working fine. Could you still take a look at it? He gets in, finds a whole mess of issues. Says, it's going to take me a couple hours to fix all this. Your internet's bound to go out a whole bunch more times if we didn't fix this. Look at Tara. <laughs> have the technician come out anyway, right? For some of you, you're in that place. You know the patterns of your life. You know the drama and the junk that you find yourself having gone through in the past. And you know, realistically, I'm probably going to make those same mistakes unless I jump out of this and find myself consumed with a different kingdom while I'm in this world. Before I let you out, I'll say this. You don't see the name of Jesus in Ecclesiastes. Tonight, Solomon's wetting your appetite, letting you know, hey, you need to know. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just want to let you know everything you're chasing, it's meaningless outside of God. And he'll give us some more hope. But we've got to understand, most books of the Bible, they give us a portrait of Jesus. Like Hebrews. Remember when we walked through Hebrews a couple series ago? Every single verse is packed full of beautiful characteristics of what Jesus has done for us. It's a portrait. You read it and you say, this is what Jesus looks like. I know it. This is great. Ecclesiastes isn't a portrait of Jesus. Ecclesiastes is more like a silhouette. You see, it's not by the presence of Jesus in this book that we find hope. It's by his absence that we find hope. Because the book isn't about the kingdom of God. It's about the kingdom of earth. And you remember when you were a little kid and your mom and dad put you to sleep and turned the lights off and they shut the door and they said, good night. And you sat there in bed for a little bit and it was dark. You started thinking, oh, I'm scared. I need to make an excuse, like I need to go to the bathroom or get a drink of water or something. And you're kind of scared and you're kind of frustrated. And then you call and you say, Mom, Dad. And then what happens? In the midst of the darkness, the door opens and you don't see the characteristics of the person in the doorway, but you see the outline, don't you? You see a silhouette. Because when you're sitting in the darkness and they opened that door and the light that they came from in the hallway was shining, you couldn't tell exactly who it was, but you knew it was who you needed. And that might be you tonight. Amen, Ryan. That might be you tonight. So call out to the one you need in the midst of the darkness, and you'll see the light shining in. Let's pray.